Father God, we praise you that you are our solid rock. I praise you that you are sovereign, and I pray that you will just help us to understand your word as we study it together this morning. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. This past August 31st, <clears throat> the world commemorated the 20th anniversary of the death of Princess Diana. Some of you are old enough to remember learning of the tragic accident that took her life. Some of you are old enough to remember her wedding. I was a young newlywed and working at a bank when she first hit the scene, and she was all anybody could talk about. She was pretty, and she was sweet, and she was soft-spoken, and apparently she had royalty in her blood, but she worked at a nursery school as an assistant, and that just really hit a chord with American women. We would look at her and think, you know, she's like one of us, except she's getting ready to marry the future king of England. Now, um, the wedding, there was so much hype about that. It was to be televised, and everybody made plans to watch it. Customers would come into the bank, and they would say things like, are you going to watch the wedding? And I would say, oh, yes, we're going to watch the wedding. And, and then people would inevitably say how much they liked her and how unattractive they found him. You could count on it. On the day of the wedding, the streets of London were packed. With people celebrating and cheering, you saw the dignitaries come in. You saw the royal family come in. You saw they came to this huge cathedral, and they would show aerial shots of things. They would show aerial shots of Queen or, uh, Princess Diana walking down with her long uh, you know, train coming through the back of the church. And then came the ceremony. That's when you got the close-ups. And you could see that she was nervous which of course made her more endearing. And then when she gave the, the, the vows, she mixed up the prince's name. And everybody was like, oh, it was just so cute. And of course, that's what you talked about the next day at work. Did you see the way she mixed up the names? And they would be like, yes, yeah, you know, oh, isn't she cute? I, everybody loved Queen Princess Diana. She was finding favor in the hearts of people all over the world. Now, our chapter this morning is going to have a lot of the same elements of that legendary royal wedding. It's filled with pageantry. It is filled with grandeur, except at the end of our chapter, instead of it ending with the royal couple majestically waving to the adoring crowds, it just takes a real nosedive and turns in to a scene of just a, some type of vulgar bachelor party. And we find ourselves asking, what can we learn about God from all of this? Well, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. Starting at verse 1. <clears throat> Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, 
the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Okay, once upon a time there was a king and his name was Ahasuerus, and he reigned over 127 providence, provinces. Okay, that is like one side of the globe to the other. It's a lot of territory. Okay, it's also going to be a lot of different cultures and a lot of different people groups and a lot of different religions that would be involved. All right, verse 3. <clears throat> In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. All right, now skip to verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Okay, if this were a movie, the opening scene would be epic, okay? It would be big. All right. If um, the author is painting for us something that is intended to take our breath away because it's just so spectacular. Okay. Now it tells us that this is the third year of his reign. You'll want to watch the timing. The notes about that are, that are given to us in this story. He gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, nobles, and his governors and his army. Look what it says in verse 4. While he showed the riches of his glory his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now, back in those days, kings knew that if they were to be successful in war, they needed to garner the um, support of the people. So they would commonly put on a show like this and they would show, it, uh, show off for their nobles and their governors and, and people like that. So he could show to them that he could afford to go to war. Or possibly it might be a way to entice them to invest in it so that they would want to go to war because there was glory and splendor to be had. That's probably the type of display that's taking place here. Okay, history will tell us that Xerxes, the same guy, he will have a party like this and then immediately after he goes to war with Greece. Okay, now I want you to notice in this passage, we're told that his glory display lasts for 180 days. Now, that's six months. And you might be thinking, you know, how can it go on for six months like that? Well, I want you to think of maybe any type of um, TV shows or movies that you've watched about the rich or, the, or those that are royalty. And what do they do when they're trying to entertain or they're trying to impress their guests? You know, first you have a day where you go hunting, and then you have a day at the theater, and then you might have some kind of sporting event. You might have something musical. Maybe one day you put the army on display. You know, maybe you have like a World's Fair where you're showing all your scientific advancements and stuff like that. That's probably what's taking place over these 180 days. 
All right. Now, you're going to notice that the king, after the big showing off campaign, we're told he hosts a second feast. Now, watch for the feasts and the banquets in this book, okay? Because they're very significant. One source counts 10. It kind of depends on how you count them. But some teachers will teach the book of Esther by going through the feasts. And I, and I decided, you know, that's what I'm going to do with the grandbabies when I go to tell them this story. Because, you know, you can count and kind of work through each feast and get through the story. All right, but I want you to notice, the king has a second feast. And according to this, everyone is invited to this one, great and small. And verse 8 says, and drinking was according to the edict, there is no compulsion. Have you ever seen a PBS movie about royalty? Apparently, there are some very strict rules about dining with royalty. For instance, if you are eating, no one picks up their fork and starts eating until the king picks up his fork. And supposedly, when, if the king left the table, boom, party's over, you don't get to eat anymore, no matter how much food is on your plate. Now, there's probably something very similar taking place here. Because typically, um, when you were feasting with the king, if the king took a drink, then you took a drink. Okay? If the king didn't drink, you didn't drink. And that was really one way of making sure that nobody's more drunk than the king. Nobody's more sober than the king either. But, um, uh, and it's also pointing out to us how much control he has over them. Okay? But, now on this occasion, we're told there was no compulsion Okay, there were no rules. Okay, in other words, there's an open bar and the king is picking up the tab. Okay, that's where we're at. Verse 9, let's see what's go going on. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So, our king has a queen and her name is Vashti. All right, and she holds a feast, and this one's for the women. Now, it's said that women and men did not mix together publicly, so that's why she's having hers. The women are having their own party. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mamuhan, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. All right, it says on the seventh day. On the seventh day of what? On the seventh day of the feast that had the drinking according to the edict, there is no compulsion. In other words, on the seventh day of the open bar. Okay? When the king of the heart, when the heart, sorry, <laughs> when the heart of the king was merry with wine. That is probably a polite way of saying, the king's a little plastered. <laughs> okay? And he says, go get my wife and tell her to wear that nice crown that I gave her. Now, when the Jewish rabbis teach this, they say she was being told to come wearing only the crown. And there's a lot of debate about that. 
All right, regardless of what she is wearing, she has just been told to come and display her beauty to the men and the princes who have been drinking without compulsion for the last seven days. Okay, and as one teacher pointed out, when men get together and there is alcohol involved, there's usually a lot of bragging. You know, they brag about their jobs, they brag about their athletic accomplishments, they brag about their finances, they brag about their conquests, and eventually they get to bragging about their sexual conquests. Good chance that's what we're doing here. So um, let's see what happens, verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Okay, now, some historians suggest that Vashti has a child shortly after this, so they theorize that she is pregnant, and that's why she doesn't come. All right, some say it's because the request was completely inappropriate, and that's why she doesn't come. Some say she is the start <coughs> of the feminist movement, and she's being <laughs> a good feminist. And that's why she doesn't come. A lot of speculation. A lot of speculation. Whatever her reason, she has just told the man that has spent 180 days and a lot of money to put his glory and his power on display. She has just told him, no. I'll be taking a pass on your party. All right, verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. Now, a little side note, watch for this. This king is always conferring with somebody before he decides anything, okay? All right, verse 15. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the king of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Okay, the king calls in the experts. Okay, what does the law say about this? Now, we need to note something here. Usually, wise men and counselors were very careful when they were counseling a king about matters of the heart and, and wives because they knew that kings changed their minds and queens had good memories. And so they usually would, they usually would err on the side of caution. All right, but let's see what they do. Verse 16. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all of the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti, Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, 
all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. All right, the king's furious. One of the princes steps forward now, and he is very anxious to help the king save face. And so he basically says to him, listen, don't take this personally. She has attacked us all. When the word gets out, there are those women, they're not going to listen to us. They're not what, going to do what we say. They're not going to respect us. So you need to get rid of her and get a new queen, get a better queen. And by better, I mean more obedient. And make it a law that all the women in the world have to respect their husbands in their home. Okay, now, you can almost imagine, you know, the men cheering and egging him on and thinking, yeah, that's a great idea, let's make a law. And so, that's what, somebody should have said, somebody should have suggested that they all go home, make a pot of coffee, you know, <laughs> think about this, but let's see what they do. Verse 21, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. All right, now, the original readers, the original Jewish readers would have found this very comedic. Okay, you have got a bunch of men that are worried that people will learn about what Queen Vashti did and then they essentially ensure that everybody will. They make a law, they make a law that Queen Vashti is out and every man will be master in his own house. Now, as I said before, a lot of debate about Vashti, uh, but uh, like we said last week, the author doesn't offer up any moral commentary on why she did it, whether it was right or wrong, we're not told, because it really doesn't matter. He's just telling the story of Vashti to set up the story of Esther and why there was a need for a new queen, okay? So um, that's, one way to, that's one thing. And, and here's another thing. This is one of the many reversals that we're going to see in this book, one of the many times where the tables are turned. And you're going to want to watch for those. The story opens with one queen, and then the tables are turned, and it ends with another. All right, they're going to be very significant in this book. The reversals, the table turning. I wonder if this is something that you need reminded of. That our God is a God of reversals that our God is a God of table turning, of taking one thing and just completely turning things around. Maybe you're going through something difficult and it just doesn't need fixed. It needs completely turned around. Our God is the God who takes the blind and makes them see. He takes the deaf and gives them hearing. He takes those that are spiritually dead and brings them to life. Our God is a God of reversals. And what we see in Esther is that he can do it with something as simple as a wife telling her husband no. 
Here's the first point on our paper. Our God is a God of reversals. We also, we see Ahasuerus, and he is putting all of his wealth and his power on display. He has spent 180 days saying, I have power, I'm in charge. But what is the reality? How's it exposed? His wife says no. His wife won't come. The history books tell us that this king will be brought low and defeated by the Greeks. He'll be humiliated by the Greeks. But the author doesn't use that. He could have. That was a well-known story by the time this book is written. But he doesn't use that. Instead, what does he do? He shows us a man who thinks he's glorious, who thinks he's powerful, who thinks he's calling all the shots. And then we see the absurdity of it by something as simple as his wife tells him no. He thinks he's in control. And it's actually laughable. He thinks he's in control, but he is not. Okay, ladies, I wonder how many of you need to be reminded of that. Maybe when you're tempted to be a control freak. Maybe when you see something on Facebook or you watch the news and you see some leader and he's uh, making these terrible promises about how he's going to blow up another country. Or maybe he's on, maybe you see a picture and they're, you know, they're holding a gun and they're making all these awful threats about all these terrible things they're going to do. Ladies, do you understand they are no different than this king? They are no different than this king. They may think that they're in control and that they're in charge, but they are not. Now, can they do damage and cause suffering along the way? Absolutely. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But we don't want to miss the point that we have right here, and that is that this king thinks he is powerful and thinks he is in control. He thinks that he's calling all the shots, but he is not. Here's our next point, number two. God alone is sovereign. God alone is sovereign. We'll be talking a lot more about that in the weeks to come. All right, I want us to go back to verse 4. <clears throat> We're going to really land on this one. Verse 4 says this. While he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. I wonder if I were to pull up your Facebook or your Instagram, if it would be much different than this. Now you might say, I hardly use it. I just use it to post pictures of my kids. <clears throat> well, I suppose they're your glory. I suspect that they are your splendor and greatness. In fact, you probably post comments similar to that fact, similar to that. Now, am I saying that you shouldn't post pictures of your kids on Facebook? No. What I'm saying is it's scary how much I have in common with this guy. 
I get him. I get him. Because there's something inside me that says, you deserve the royal treatment. You deserve attention. You should put your glory on display. You should do things your way. You should be in charge. Let's ask a really hard question. Are we really all that different from the king in this story? We want to be in control. We want the glory. We want our name to be great. We want to be noticed. And we live in a culture that is ready to accommodate us. We live in a world that is ready to help us point to ourselves. Now, <clears throat> Leslie Ludy, she has some very helpful teaching on this. She has a number of books you can read. You can also watch her on YouTube. She's excellent. I highly recommend her. She points out that our culture has provided us with many ways to say, look at me, notice me. And um, I want to go over some of them. Number one, I've got a place for you to list these on your paper. It's a hard list, but here we go. Number one, social media. That is at the top of her list. She points out that, first of all, it's dangerous because it can be a time waster. You think you're going to spend five minutes on it, you know, then an hour's gone by and you're still there. She sees, she also says, she sees that women are in danger of spending more time on social media than they spend cultivating their relationship with Jesus. She says it is also one of the ways that we say, look at me. She says young women are tempted to strategically post flattering pictures of themselves or witty comments or keep track of the number of likes that they get. She points out that's a very junior high. <laughs> it is. She also says that some women spend more time posting about motherhood than being a mother in real life behind the scenes where no one can see. Now, she's very clear that she has a Facebook and that she tries to use it for the glory of God. So she's not saying no, no social media. She's not saying that. All she's saying is that we have to be very guarded because it can be a way that we draw attention to ourselves. Okay, here's the next thing. Next on our list, number two, posting selfies. Posting selfies. Okay, the very name of that one kind of explains, explains that one. Um, she asks the question, is there such a thing as a good selfie? Okay, now she answers that. She says, you know, maybe if you have a family member or a friend and you're trying to cheer them up, you know, I know when my kids are going out together, I'll say, you know, send me a pic. You know, so, so yes, you know, there probably is such a thing as a good selfie, posting a good selfie, but it's probably a lot rarer than we think, than we realize. Okay, do you realize there are apps made for your phone that will clean up your similar selfies that you have so as to give you more space on your phone. So that means we're not only taking a lot of selfies, we need apps to help us get them all organized. <laughs> okay, that's, that's sad. That's just really sad. All right, here's what I want to ask you. What are you doing to prepare your children for this? Uh, my generation, we did not take pictures of ourselves because we did not have the phones. 
but we apparently passed on to the next generation what a great idea it was. So this is going to be something that your children are going to be hit with, boom, very, very young. So what are you doing to prepare them? I've shared this before. I started teaching my daughter about modesty when she was three. Actually, probably younger, because it was as she was be becoming aware of clothing and her body parts, that's when we began talking about it. Now, the neat thing about that is by the time that she was in high school, we had talked about it. All we had to do was some tweaking along the way. Okay, so, and it is going to be the same for you with selfies and cell phones. All right, you do not want to wait till your kids are teenagers before you start talking about this. Now, um, does that mean, uh, does that mean that if uh, your children are uh, teenagers that it's over for you? Uh, no, no, no. I always like the, um, the Chandler quote, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. Grace abounds. But one of the advantages of teaching your children and starting things at a young age is that you can teach them a piece at a time. So it's, it's a building block. They're not getting hit with everything at once. You're building, okay? And, and the, the main point here is you don't want the world teaching your children about this. You want to have a very gospel-centered approach. Okay, next on our list, number three, online dating. Okay, I, I, to be honest, I'd never really thought much about this one, but she includes it. Here's how, how she put it. She likens online dating to a woman on stage in front of a room full of men giving a presentation on why they should like her. Okay, so um, for that reason, she includes it. All right, number four, here's a good one. Sensual clothing. Sensual clothing. Dressing sensually says, look at me. Look at me. If your clothing or your lack of clothing is drawing attention to your body, okay, then it's sensual, and it's saying, look at me. Could be saying that. All right, number five on your list, flirting. When we're flirtatious, we want men to notice us, and we're calling attention to ourselves. And even married women do that. All right, here's the last one on our list, and I want you to brace yourself for this. Pinterest boards. I may have lost you on that one. <laughs> now, she is careful. She's very careful to say that she gets great recipes from Pinterest, and she gets great birthday parties ideas from Pinterest. So she's not saying Pinterest is bad and that it can't be useful. What she's saying is that we have to be guarded about it, that it has the potential of being something that we use to call attention to ourselves. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. Look what I'm eating. Look what I'm not eating. You know, look where I'm going. Look where I want to go. I mean, it's just we're, just, we're just using it to say, look at me. Okay? Now, at this point, some of you may be thinking, well, what's the big deal? You know, what, what's wrong with calling a little attention to myself and enjoying a little self-glory? I mean, it's not like I'm lying or killing somebody. Why was it such a problem 
the king Ahasuerus made such a spectacle of his own glory. Why is that a problem? All right, turn with me to Psalms, the book of Psalms, Psalms 115. Middle of your Bible, Psalms 115. Verse 1 says this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Okay, next go to Isaiah 42. It's going to be a couple books to your right. You're going to move right. Isaiah 42, verse 8. 42, 8. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Okay, one more. Isaiah 48, 11. We're going to go over a few two pages. Isaiah 48, 11. Says this. God is speaking. <clears throat> for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Okay, did you catch the problem? God will not share his glory. Now, when it comes to glory, it seems we want to do um, one of two things. We either want it for ourselves or we want to give it to the idols in our lives. All right, but God will not share his glory. He will not give his praise to another. He will not give his praise to carved idols or to kings or to princes or to mothers on Instagram. I want to read to you a, a quote by Paul Tripp. This is what he says. We were made for his glory we are called to display his glory in everything we do, but sin makes us glory thieves. There is probably not a day when we do not plot to steal glory that is rightfully belongs to the Lord. We crave glory that does not belong to us. We step on one another to get it. Rather than glorifying God by using the things he has given us to love other people, we use people to get the glory we love. Sin causes us to steal the story and rewrite it with ourselves as the lead and with our lives at center stage. But there is only one stage and it belongs to the Lord. Here's our next point, number three. Sin makes us glory thieves. Okay, I want to give you a visual, <clears throat> kind of help us remember it. I tend to do better with visuals, and so I'm going to give you one. All right, here's what he's saying. Here's what the Bible teaches. We were created to give God glory, okay? We were created to do this, to put the glory on God, all right? But because of sin, we do this, okay? 
All right. Now, um, sometimes we might also point to different idols in our lives, but let's think about it. Most of those idols just kind of end up helping uh, put the glory back on ourselves. All right, now, sadly, we haven't spent a lot of time over the past um, five years talking about glory, the glory of God, so I want to give you a few basics very quickly this morning. So here's our next point. This comes from David Platt. Number four, everything revolves around the glory and the greatness of God. Everything. Now, last week, remember we said that God was the hero of the Bible. Right, this week we're learning something very similar, and that is everything in the universe centers on God, on the greatness of God, and on the glory of God. All right, now because of sin, we want it to center on us, yes? We want this. All right, now, and, and by the way, if you need uh, an example of this, if you want a hardcore example of this, think of your children. Think of your babies. They come out of the womb demanding that attention be on them, yes? Okay, um, now I want to give you a definition of what I mean by the glory of God. And, and this is a, a, a hard thing to explain and do it adequately because um, whatever we come with is going to be inadequate. So I'm going to give you a Paul Tripp definition for this. Here's next on your paper. Number five, the doctrine of God's glory encompasses the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that he is. All right, so when we're talking about the glory of God, we're talking about it encompasses the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that he is. Now, some of you, if you were with us through the holiness um, series, you might be thinking, well, that sounds a lot like the way we defined holiness. And, and, you'd, be, and you'd be right on track. In fact, um, it does. Uh, John Piper describes the glory of God as the going public of his holiness. Okay, um, he gives the example Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, Piper says glory is the way God puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. Okay, here's our next point, and it's a Piper quote. Number six, the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. Okay, you and I have been created to put the spotlight on this. All right, we've been created to put the spotlight on God's, on his greatness, on his beauty, and on his perfection. Okay, God's, not ours. All right, here's um, our next point, number seven. We were made for his glory, and we are called to display his glory in everything we do. You and I have been created and called to display God's glory in everything we do in a culture that is in the midst of a narcissist epidemic. We've talked about this. It's in a culture that is completely comfortable with the attitude that we see here with King Ahasuerus. If King Ahasuerus were alive today, he'd have a Twitter feed and a million followers. We're completely comfortable with this guy. Okay, in his mentality. Now, I want to give you two definitions of something that we see uh, with this topic. We see it in Esther, and it's in our culture as well. The first word is 
It's like narcissistic, but it's number eight. We're number eight on your papers. It's vainglory. And vainglory is the excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval from others. The word literally means empty glory. Empty glory. All right, now that's on one side. And, and most of us would cringe at the thought of being narcissistic or vainglorious. That, that's repulsive to us. All right, so, but that brings us to our next, next definition, and that is its opposite, which is number nine, self-conscious. That is intensely aware of oneself, excessively aware of being observed by others. Now, if, if you've got to struggle, this is probably the place where you're landing, uh, probably, because um, a big one for women. Uh, we're self-conscious. We're insecure. We're self-conscious about our appearance. We're self-conscious about our parenting. We're self-conscious about our relationships. Okay? It's just, it's something we women deal with. Okay? But here's the thing. Whether you're vainglorious or whether you're self-conscious, they both center on self. Okay? They, they both with both, the focus is on self. All right, with one, it's like this. Okay, with the other, it's like this. Okay, okay, but they're both still on self. Okay, so our most basic sin nature says, look at me, approve me, applaud me. Okay, we are vainglorious instead of God-glorious. And here's the thing, it's empty. It's empty. It is empty glory. Pursuing it is not satisfying. Pursuing it will make you miserable because it's empty. So what's the anecdote? What's the anecdote to vain glory? What's the anecdote for sin? Okay, what did we talk? We talked about this last week. What did God promise in the garden after the first sin? He promised a snake crusher. He promised a savior who would give us victory over our sin. He promised us Jesus. I want us to turn to one last passage that was a part of your homework. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles. chapter 29. The book had you read this because it's going to provide a contrast between the two kings. On one hand, you've got the lost king, King Ahasuerus. He's godless. He's lost. And then you have King David. He's the writer of what we're about to read. And he believed in a, in a, in a coming savior. He had a right relationship with God. So we want to we compare the two mentalities. Here we go. First Chronicles 29. I'm going to start at verse 10. It says this. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. 
Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Okay, these are the words of a man who knew God. These are the words of a man who knew his Savior. And where's his focus? Notice that it says that David is in the presence of the assembly. He has an audience, doesn't he? People are watching him. And where is his spotlight? What does he spotlight? He shines the spotlight on the greatness and the power and the glory of God. Ladies, that's what our lives are to do. That's what our lives are to display. This is what you have been created for. This is why you need a savior. We cannot do it on our own. But I want to pull this back to the book of Esther and let's uh, tie this together. I have on your handout a point from last week. It's ver uh, number 10 on your papers. It says this, the greater purpose of the book of Esther is to show the providence of God in history to promote his purposes and preserve his people. Now, I want you to do something. I want you to circle the phrase, promote his purposes. Circle that. And then next to that, I want you to write this sentence. God exists for his glory. God exists for his glory. Those two go together. What he purposes will ultimately and always bring glory to his name. Always. So if we're ever going to have the slightest grasp on the sovereignty of God, we have got to understand that God exists for his glory and that his purposes will always bring about glory to his name. Or, or sovereignty is just never going to make sense to us. Here's our last point, number 11. God's supreme goal in history is to display his glory and bring honor and praise to his name. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard lesson. But you are a kind and gracious God, and I pray that you'll just help us to understand it, help us to build our understanding just a block at a time. Help us to understand your glory. Help us to understand the need for Jesus. Help us to understand the sovereignty of God. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.